Harvest Dinner we also held in the fall merged with that, and then we've done that for about eight years. We've always had something evening. So it's been a while since I've preached in the morning on it. But I think it is, uh, behooves us that in preparation for Thursday, we actually understand something about what we're celebrating. And there's a legacy that was given to us by the pilgrims that uh, is extremely important. The tragedy is that so much of this has been lost. We live in a time when the uh, elite of our society are hostile to God. Um, and so it's not surprising that references to God in historical past, as well in this present, excuse me, are being removed. And um, that's not just in the secular classroom. It's in our historical events as well. There's a book by um, Catherine Miller called The Rewriting of American History that recounts some of the things in our history that are very clearly this is God's hand, that uh, the symbolism, the, the, the memorial things to have been removed. This is an example of this. There is a church in Philadelphia called Christ Church. It was an early church. Uh, the patriots of that period of time, the Revolutionary War, worshipped there. They had a stained glass window put in. This is called the Patriots window. It's also called the uh, Christ Church Patriots 1790. And this would have been those still alive in 1790 worshiping in that church. And you can see them there at the bottom frame. And I know it's kind of hard to see, but you can see all these different people. Well, those are different Patriots. It would include Washington and, and Ben Franklin and a lot of those that were instrumental in writing um, the Declaration of Independence and uh, our Constitution. And they're there with open Bibles. What's above it up here, and I see, you see there's a fellow there, there's his hand, there's his Bible, and they're here. It's the 1607 celebration of communion in Jamestown. After they landed, that's one of the first things they celebrated is coming here and successfully landing, and so they celebrated communion. This was removed in 1986 from the church. It is actually under um, uh, national parks now. There's a church that still meets in it, but it's actually controlled by the national parks. They removed it supposedly for cleaning and then decided that, well, we wanted to be more historical to the Revolutionary War period, and they replaced it with 20th century glass. Now, I don't see how taking out glass formed in the 19th century in commemoration of what happened in the 18th century and putting in clear glass from the 20th century is somehow making the building historic, but it was removed. It's never been put back. It is now in permanent storage. Another stained glass window that was in that church is this one. It's called the Liberty Window. It was patterned off of a painting by Harrison Tompkins Madison. Some of you remember that his Spirit of 76 is probably one of the most famous paintings. It's the same guy. And uh, this one shows the meeting of the First Continental Congress, September 7, 1774, and all 56 of the congressmen are praying. Obviously, that's not politically correct. We can't show congressmen praying, especially all 56 of the first congressmen who unanimously invited Jacob Duke, the first rector of Christ's church, to preside in prayer, beseeching God's blessing upon the new government. You cannot get the postcards any longer, and the interpreter no longer even mentions these. This is our history, and it's important history. We need to remember it. And um, it's part of why I wanted to talk about it somewhat today. We need to understand what God has done in the past, not just biblically, but even more recent past. God's hand is there, and there's much to thank him for, and there's a legacy these people have left us.
In regards to Thanksgiving itself, I've noticed increasing avoidance of mentioning God. I first noticed this. Someone showed me a Sesame Street magazine, November 1991, so it's back a few years now. And here's what the very short article for kids said about Thanksgiving. Quote, entitled The Thanksgiving Story, The Native Americans joined the pilgrims for a special meal. The pilgrims were thankful for all the food that the American Indians had helped them grow that year. Unquote. There's no mentioning of God at all within the article. I'm sure the pilgrims were very thankful for the Indians for their help. But the reason for the celebration, which lasted three days, was to give thanks to God for a bountiful harvest. That was its purpose. We should never forget the motivation for that journey by the separatists, these pilgrims, to establish a colony in Plymouth was religious in nature. That was its purpose. Yes, there was a business aspect. Somehow it has to be paid for. But their whole purpose was religious. Modern uh, revisionists are trying to make that into a myth or romantic legend, but the facts do not go away. It's still there. The pilgrims themselves were separatists, and um, they were the driving force behind the Plymouth Plantation Company. It goes back a little earlier. 1608, a group of these separatists were under such persecution in England by the Anglican Church, they decided to flee to Holland, and they did. They were there for 12 years, but they found that their children were becoming more Dutch than English. They wanted to maintain an English heritage as well for their children. They also didn't like some of the loose living among the Dutch as compared to the way the English were living. And so they ended up forming this company of the Plymouth Plantation Company. And then in 1620, they set sail on the Mayflower, 102 souls on the ship, 35 of them these pilgrims, for the purpose of establishing a new colony in northern Virginia. They arrived November 11, 1620, in the vicinity of Cape Cod. They were severely north of where they were supposed to have been, and they tried to get south, but they couldn't get around the shoals and decided so late in the season they had to find some place there. So they searched the coast and finally decided on a place to start setting up a uh, settlement. In December, just prior for their leaving the Mayflower itself, where they've been living, to now start residing on the shore, and they drew up the Mayflower Compact. We understand very clearly their purposes from what the compact said. Among the things in it, I'm not going to read the whole thing, says this, In the name of God, amen, we whose names are underwritten have undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents, solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant combine ourselves into a civil body politic. And by virtue hereof do enact such just and equal laws as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony. Very important document in American history. But notice again its purpose undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith, set sail to establish a colony in northern Virginia. It wasn't to make money. And in fact, as we go through what they went through, they were not very good at making money. There was little food, much sickness, and a lot of death. 
If they had not stumbled upon an Indian camp that had been abandoned and the storage of corn there would have been a lot worse. By March, in the first signs of spring, William Bradford wrote this, The spring now approaching, it pleased God the mortality began to cease amongst them, and the sick and lame recovered a pace which put, as it were, new life into them, though they had borne their sad affliction with much patience and contentedness. Out of the 102 that set sail, 47 died by March. In the next couple months, several more would die, including John Carver, the governor. William Bradford, whose wife had also died that winter, was chosen to take Carver's place as governor. Spring and summer had their own challenges. They had to develop relationships with the Indians. Some were hostile, some were not. The Wampanoags were helpful. And then there was one surviving Patuxet, Tisquantum, or known as Squanto, and his story is an amazing story to begin with. comes walking to camp, speaking good British English, and uh, helps him out. He's the sole survivor of his tribe. But he comes in and he aids them of how to live in this new world, what kind of plants to crop, how to fertilize them. And they had a good harvest, which Bradford described as all things in good plenty. And so Bradford called for a Thanksgiving celebration of their harvest. It ended up lasting three days, and it was shared with their Wampanoag friends. Chief Massasoit came with 90 of his warriors, which meant that the Indians outnumbered the pilgrims two to one. There's only a few left. The feast might be considered by today's standards, but there was plenty of various waterfowl. This is in Bradford's journal. Wild turkey, venison, and then uh, there also would have been fish, corn, wheat, and barley, as well as squash, nuts, and beans. Those were common things grown by the Indians. They would have had it as well. The event began with a prayer service led by the elder William Brewster. So God was definitely part of it. Now, we often concentrate on those three days of celebration and feasting as held as, well, that's the proof of their thanksgiving to God, right? Look at this great celebration they held. Well, no, the proof of their real thanksgiving is the day to day, week to week, they met together and worshiped God and gave him thanks and prayed for his mercy and grace upon them even as they were dying and sick all winter long. That is the true thanksgiving. Would any of us respond to those kinds of harsh conditions and such loss of life with that kind of thanksgiving in the manner they did? Yes, only if you have a heart of thanksgiving like they did, and that is the kind of legacy they have left us and which we need to live according to. Now, special times of thanksgiving continue to be part of pilgrim life. That next winter was also meager. They had uh, miscalculated how much food they actually had in storage. Uh, In fact, it seems that they figured that out not long after their days of feasting, like, oops, Uh, We should not have eaten quite so much. This is going to be a little rough on us. And then in November, so their first feast was earlier than that, the ship, the fortune arrived. On the ship were 35 more souls, which they were thankful for because a lot of them were relatives, but the fortune did not bring any provisions. Now you had 35 more people, nearly doubling the size of the colony, and you were going to be meager to begin with. By May 1622, they were completely out of food. Harvest was still several months away. They had plenty of fish out in 
the bay, but they didn't have the equipment or the knowledge of how to get it. They basically survived on shellfish they caught by hand. This was called the starving time. Their harvest that next year was a dismal failure. Only the arrival of the discovery and its trading supplies enabled them to barter with the Indians to have anything. So as the next year came in, it got so bad, their ration was five kernels of corn apiece. That was it, five kernels of corn. And in a very traditional Thanksgiving dinner, you actually will put five kernels out as a reminder of what they went through. The drought that next summer, this would be 1622, almost killed their crops, and they called for a prayer meeting for God's mercy. God graciously answered. There was a gentle rain for two weeks. At the end of that two weeks, two ships arrived, the Anne and the Little James. Sixty more souls came to the colony, and both were packed with provisions. Governor Branford called for July 30th as a special day of thanksgiving. And that continued the kind of practice they would have for years to come. They held another Thanksgiving in November 1622 for the ingathering of crops. Those same crops that almost died earlier had recovered, and they had the the greatest harvest they'd had to date. 1668, November 25th, was appointed as Thanksgiving Day with these words written in the Plymouth Colony records. Quote, it has pleased God in some comfortable measure to bless us in the fruits of the earth, unquote. Now, special days of Thanksgiving became sporadic in the years after, especially if we look at some kind of a national history. During the Revolutionary War, uh, we've jumped quite a few years into the late 1700s, there were eight national days of Thanksgiving for either a victory win or a disaster avoided, and then one in 1784 at the end of the war. In 1789, President Washington called for a day of Thanksgiving and issued this proclamation. Let me read part of it. He said, Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday the 26th of November next to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protections of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the single and manifold mercies, Then he goes on, which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war for the great tranquility, union, and plenty which we have enjoyed, and in general for all the great and various favors which he hath pleased to confer upon us. Washington understood God was the source of their blessing. Now, this National Day of Thanksgiving was celebrated by all religious denominations, and it helped promote a spirit of common heritage among them. Then in 1795, he said, for another day of national thanksgiving. Not until 1815 was the next one held. James Madison called for a national day of thanksgiving at the conclusion of the War of 1812. After that, various states would have state days of thanksgiving, but there wasn't anything national done again until 1863. Lady Mrs. Sarah Hale, editor of Goody's Ladies' Book, prompted President Lincoln to set aside a proclamation making the last Thursday in November an annual day of Thanksgiving. And uh, that continued on in 1941. A joint resolution of Congress established the fourth Thursday in November 
as Thanksgiving Day, and they made it. Now, what's more interesting than all this was the fact that the Thanksgiving celebrated by the pilgrims in Plymouth was not the first observance of Thanksgiving in what is now U.S. territory. And that surprises people. No, they were late. Actually, the first one was in uh, December 4th, 1619. 39 English settlers arrived at Berkeley Plantation in the James River, Virginia. And they set aside, as was their charter required them, to yearly observe Thanksgiving. Now, that's interesting. 1619, they arrived there. Their charter requires them to have an annual day of Thanksgiving. And so they beat the pilgrims by a couple years. Now, official days of Thanksgiving were not a new thing to the pilgrims. I've seen several poems where it makes the idea that a Thanksgiving day is somehow an American invention. It's not. They were common to the pilgrims. Community harvest celebrations were common in England. They were part of English history. Uh, actually still are. There are certain days that are set aside in remembrance of Thanksgiving for certain events. For example, a day was proclaimed in 1605 in grateful deliverance for the thwarting of the gunpowder plot when Guy Fawkes wanted to blow up the House of Commons. How many celebrate Guy Fawkes Day? How many ever heard of it? A couple people have at least heard of it. You probably don't celebrate it, but it is still celebrated in England because they were grateful for it. Not only that, but while they were in Holland for 12 years, they observed the Dutch annually in October commemorated a Thanksgiving Day because of the victory they had over Spain in 1575. Now, the practice of National Days of Thanksgiving don't trace back just to that. They go much further back. They go back to Leviticus. Because in Leviticus, both the Feast of first fruits at the beginning of harvest and the Feast of Booths at the end of the harvest are established. Christianity picks it directly up from the Old Testament, and these were common celebrations. They understood we are to give thanks to God for what we have. So no original thought in them. They were doing what they were trained. However, I do believe that the pilgrims set aside those days of Thanksgiving in 1621 not because of tradition but because they knew God and walked with him. Their celebration was simply an expression of what was already on their hearts. I say this because people who go through that kind of extreme hardship don't do that just because, well, we've got to keep the tradition anyways. They can only do it if it's really there, if they really believe it and it needs to be done. Their thanksgiving was genuine from the heart. The pilgrims were different than modern Americans. America tends to be proud and arrogant now. We tend to think as a nation we can rely upon ourselves or the masters of our own fate. We're not. While Christians sometimes are accused of glorifying God in everything and blaming him for nothing, which, by the way, is correct theology, the secularists do the opposite. They blame God for everything and thank him for nothing. The humble know that God is holy. He does not tempt anyone, much less cause evil, James chapter 1, verse 13. The humble also know that their own sinfulness is rampant. They recognize it, that that is what has caused the problems we have. It's man's rebellion against God. That is why God has cursed the earth. It's because of man's sin. Genesis 3 and James 1, 14 through 15 solidly lays the problems we have on ourselves and our own sinfulness. 
The humble also recognize this from James 1.17, every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We understand that, and that's why we're quick to recognize it is God's gracious and loving hand, and so we give Him thanks. It's what God has placed in our hearts. It's also not enough to just say thank you. Anybody can say thank you. That's just part of good manners. We teach our children to say thank you because it's the common courtesy of being polite. Now, of course, it's a lot easier to say thank you when you get something you want. A child's much more likely to say thank you and easily say it if they get the toy they've been asking for, right? They're probably not as apt to do that when you put Brussels sprouts on their plate and say you've got to eat a couple of them. That's usually no thank you or worse, right? Don't want those. That or lima beans or peas or the other things that they'll learn to grow up and eat later as, as good things. You do understand Brussels sprouts and lima beans, and they're all good. Well, if you cook them right, they're good. Well-mannered people learn to be thankful, though, even when you get something you don't like. I remember 20 years ago, Diane and I received a two-foot-high ceramic Christmas tree that was the most hideous, ugly thing I can remember. Somebody's mother had made it in their art class, and uh, we figured out that she must have given it to us because it was a good way to get rid of it. Say, I gave it to the pastor, Mom. That's safe. And I think all she wanted was it out of her house. But we still, being good-natured and properly trained, said, thank you. Of course, we wonder what in the world to do with it. And because you know they're coming over, you're going to have to display it. How do you do that? Um, I guess God was gracious. They moved away. (laughs) Never had to deal with it after that. (laughs) Now, the hallmark of a heart of thanksgiving is genuine gratitude, though, in the midst of difficult times. That's why David's letter was so important. Can you be thankful when your heart is hurting? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 commands us, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The word everything leaves nothing out. Everything. There's no circumstance we can experience in which we cannot give thanks to God, but that can only be done if we see things from God's perspective and live for his purposes. The pilgrims were doing that. Can we really be thankful in the middle of trials? James 1, 2 commands, it doesn't suggest, it commands. Consider it all joy. It's a mental action. You take the circumstance of life and consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's tough. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 says we exult. It's a very strong word of jubilation. We exult in our tribulations. Paul, are you out of your mind? No, he's not out of his mind. He understands things from God's perspective. You see, you cannot complain and rejoice at the same time, but you can rejoice and give thanks at the same time. Paul and James both tell us that even our trials can be a cause of blessing, cause for rejoicing, and hence thanksgiving will remember that even those things God uses in our lives. If we see it from his perspective, we know his hand is at work. That's why it was good to bring up Danny's life. We only look at it from our perspective and says, tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. And yet we can also start getting glimpses that God knew what he was doing, and he's affected the lives of many people because of it 
for the rest of their life. God knows what he's doing, though we don't understand. And so, yes, we can give thanks, even when we're hard. We also know that God uses those very difficulties, those trials, those tribulations, to mature us. That's what James 1 and Romans 5 are about. He takes and molds us and makes us the mature people he wants us to be. Hebrews 12 even gives me a cause for rejoicing and giving thanks when God is chastening me. Anybody like to be chastened by God? Not the particular of the chastening, but I'm sure glad he chastens me. Why? Hebrews 12, 7 through 8 tells me that God chastens every son whom he loves. If you're without chasing, you're illegitimate. And so when God chastises me because I have decided to go my own way and he's calling me back, I have to say, thank you, Lord. At least I know I belong to you. And that's a good thing. I'm not illegitimate. It's easy to praise the Lord and give thanks when you get what you want, but can you do it when, as Job described it, what I fear has come upon me? He was so devastated, all he could say was, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the, the Lord. That's it. Absolutely devastated. But I believe you can respond as Job did. I believe you can respond like the pilgrims, if you have the right foundation for a heart of gratitude. And there is a biblical foundation that's laid out for us. It comes from understanding three things. Number one, what we actually deserve. Number two, God's character. And number three, our actual purpose in life. If I understand those things properly, I have the foundation for a heart of thanksgiving that can give praise to God even when my heart may be breaking because of circumstances. Well, what is it we deserve? When a person thinks they deserve what is given to them, there's a sharp reduction in gratitude. I hope you're thankful for your job, especially when employment is high. We're thankful for a job, but you've done the work all week and you expect your paycheck. You rightly can demand the paycheck. You don't have to grovel for it. You earned it. Gifts and charity are something different. That's something you're getting that you don't deserve at all. And so there should be a gratefulness for that that is something different than, I'm glad I got my paycheck. But when something starts changing what is charity into an entitlement, as unfortunately our government has done, there is a side effect. And it reduces the amount of gratefulness that is there. Because now it's not charity, it's not a gift to me, it's not graciousness to me, it's, I deserve this. And because I deserve it, I don't have to be as thankful. Many of you have experienced this because this idea has spilled out all over the place. You have tried to help someone and you don't even get a cursory thank you anymore. In fact, Steve, you were telling me that the other day, right? Yeah, you help them out and it's not even, hey, thanks, nothing. I've experienced that a lot. Some of the, the things are almost bizarre, but living next to the church, you get a lot of people coming around wanting something. Some of the more bizarre ones. One was the family that came up, and it was an old Cadillac. This was a few years ago. And uh, they wanted gas money, and they needed 70-something dollars for the hotel they've already booked. I said, what? Oh, you expect us to do that? No. If you need a place to stay, the, the camper was not a chicken coop at that time. <laughs> you could have stayed in it. It was okay. I said, you can stay in our camper, or we can fix something up. You can stay in the church. No, we don't pay for hotels. And they got mad and left. Then there was the fellow that Diane and I, you'll remember this one, who was a young man, 
picked him up. He, he stayed with us that night. He was trying to bike his way to Maine in November. Not good timing. And uh, in the morning, we invite him, says, you can come and enjoy breakfast with the rest of us. We were eating cereal. And uh, he got in a snit because we weren't going to fix him eggs with, egg, with, you know, like an egg McMuffin with an English toast with it, um, uh, English muffin. And, and he, he got upset with us. His hunger finally got to him. He came and ate some cereal. But there's no gratitude, no gratefulness. It changes things. We think we deserve it. I had another lady came. We didn't have the uh, pantry we have now in the church. She came, uh, mom had a baby, and she needed food for her and her baby. Okay, so I went next door, and uh, our kids were young. I had Formula House. We had just gotten some milk, so I grabbed that and some food and brought some bags out and uh, met her in the parking lot and came out of the house, and she says, this is from you? And I said, yeah, this is from me. The Lord has blessed us. We, we can share what we have with you. Well, I, I, this is from you. I said, yes. Well, I, I can't take charity can't take charity. What do you think a church does? It's charity. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. We give it freely out of the goodness of our hearts because God has blessed us. You can't take charity. And so gratitude starts dropping down when we think we deserve things. Understand something right from the beginning, and this is something the pilgrims did understand. They deserved absolutely nothing from God except his eternal punishment. Because that is the only thing we have earned from him. The scriptures are very clear of this. People who know they are getting benefits they do not deserve are grateful. Those who think they deserve them are not grateful. The pilgrims understood they deserved nothing. I just jumped my notes. When we look at the book of Romans, we see very clearly what we deserve. Romans 3.10 says, There are none that seek God. There are none that are good. Romans 3.23 tells us that all are, it's actually in the present tense, all are sinning not just past tense, we're currently doing it. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Those are the things we have earned. It is God's mercy and his grace that we have received anything. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 tells us the goodness, the kindness, the forbearance of God should cause us to repentance. As we look to see we deserve nothing, and yet God has still provided food for the eater. He has provided for us shelter. He has provided for us the things we need to get along in life. That is his forbearance and his patience because he's not brought upon us what we deserve. Instead, he's gone beyond that and out of his goodness and mercy, he has provided what we need for life. That kindness of God should cause us to repent and come to him. When we go further and see that God has gone much beyond that, and into his very character, extended a mercy in Christ, even more so should we have thankfulness to him. We should be thankful. 
Do you realize that anything you receive from God, not because of anything it's in you, because of his character. it's his very character that extends it. His love is expressed in both mercy and in grace. Mercy is withholding what you deserve. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. He not only in his mercy has withheld our punishment, but in grace he's extended salvation in Christ so that we can be made his children, adopted into his family. Our sins are taken care of because Christ has paid those sins for us. But more than that, he has regenerated us to life to begin with. We've been studying that in Colossians the last couple months anyways. He's regenerated us. He's redeemed us. He's reconciled us to God so we have a proper relationship with our Creator. All those things are because of His character. Romans 5.8 tells us it's because of God's character, Him demonstrating His love that Christ died for us when we were sinners. Not when He saw something good in us. He didn't. He saw us as sinners. Not because something was going to come in the future. He saw us as sinners, but because of his own character. He demonstrates his love for us, and while we're yet sinners, yet sinners, yet at enmity with him, yet fighting against him, Christ died for us. That's God's character. And when I understand God's character, I can rejoice in everything that he does. His patience with me, his kindness to me, the eternal life, Romans 6.23, doesn't stop with the wages of sin is death. Doesn't it go on? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I can give thanks in all circumstances. It is his love that is extended. Now, those who want and receive this gift that God allows us to gain through faith in Christ, we rejoice. We give thanks to him. Those who see their need of God's gift accept it with gladness, but others don't see that for various reasons, and so they fail. Some fail to see their sinfulness, the need for the Savior, and so they ignore it, and where that's ignored, there is no thankfulness. Others are proud, thinking they already deserve it, and so they're not grateful. Still others think they can earn it by their own means and methods, so they do not rejoice. They do not give thanks. That lack of gratitude only demonstrates this lack of understanding of God's character and what they actually deserve. Unfortunately, they have some sort of character of God that's not true. And because that's what they're believing, they are eventually going to experience some other attributes of God, His holiness and His justice and His wrath when the long-suffering and patience finally comes to an end. That's a warning. We can rejoice, we can give thanks because of the character of God. The third foundation for a heart of thanksgiving is knowing that the actual purpose of your existence can be fulfilled. First, you've got to know what it is. It's that actual purpose of existence that gives us the insight to understand life and its experience from God's perspective. Understand, just very quickly, back in Genesis 1, 26 through 30, God created man for a purpose, and it was so we'd be his regents here on earth. We have dominion over earth. We are responsible to him for how we take care of it. We have a purpose. 
But man ruptured that relationship with God, so we were no longer glorifying him, doing what we're supposed to be doing, and created this chasm between us. And man can't bridge it. God bridged the gap himself in the atoning sacrifice of Christ so that those who believe in him would be regenerated, restored to that purpose of glorifying God. And while salvation occurs in a moment of time, you go from unsaved to saved, from unregenerate to regenerate, to from unredeemed to redeemed, in a moment of time, based upon faith, sanctification takes a lot longer. Sanctification is being set apart to God, and that continues to increase throughout our lives. We are being conformed to the image of Christ, but we're not there yet. Now, the purpose of sanctification is this process where we, being new creatures, and we are new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17, are changed to become more like Christ, Romans 8.29. How does he do it? He transforms us by the renewing of our minds. We're not conformed to the world, but we're changed, transformed, by having a different mind as the Holy Spirit works upon us. We think differently than we did before. Our outlook is different. God also, who chose us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, did so that we'd be holy and blameless before him. Colossians 1.22, we looked at that some weeks ago. That is the means by which he does conform us to the image of his Son. And he who began that work in you is faithful to complete it, Philippians 1.6. And so we are no longer our own. We are bought with the price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, as 1 Peter 1.18 describes it. And in short, then we have a simple reason for existence as a Christian. It's this, to glorify God in everything as we become more like Jesus in our daily living. That's just to put it succinctly. That's my purpose of existence. I am to glorify God in everything as He is making me more like Jesus every day. That's my purpose. Simple? Yes. It is simple. Hard to live out? Yes. Hard to live out, but He is doing that work in us. It is this perspective that allows you to have a genuine heart of thanksgiving, giving even in the midst of the toughest trials. This is the perspective the pilgrims had. Let me give you some practical examples of this, how it can work out. Many of us have prayed for a friend that would be there for us, that would encourage us, minister to us, be that friend for us. And what we're given is a ministry. Someone who latches on to us, and sometimes it feels like they're sucking the blood out of us because they always need something. And we're thinking, please, can't you kind of like meet some of my needs? And the answer is, no, I can't because I am a mess and I really need your help. You ever have that happen? Yeah, it happens. But guess what? It's okay. In fact, it's good. You know why? Because 1 Peter 5, 7 already tells me something I needed to know says that I can cast all my cares upon him, for he cares for me. That gives me a pretty good position. I really kind of wanted this other person to be the person I could dump on. I don't have to dump on them. I can take all my problems directly to God. And you know what? He can do something about it. It might even be better. That's number one. Number two, even though I want them to minister to my needs, I thank God that he's actually put someone in my life that I can help. Maybe it means I'm not quite the basket case I thought I was. 
God can still use me in my wretchedness. That's pretty good, too. God still uses me. Not only that, but as God's I am ministering needs, this I'm finding, person. you know what, he's changing me. Because I need to reach out and minister, I'm not the selfish person I was. I'm learning to get beyond that and start seeing that God wants to use me in the lives of other people. So I prayed for a friend and I got a ministry. Praise God for it. Because he's still going to meet the needs I have, the real needs I have. Meanwhile, he's using me in the life of somebody else to help change them. Even as I minister to them, God's changing me. How about something a little more difficult? You pray for a baby, and you continue to wait, and wait, and wait. Or a baby finally comes, and the baby's not in perfect health. Those are hard. Those are difficult. And yet, you can be thankful when you remember that your value in life is in serving the Lord Jesus Christ, not on your ability to procreate. That's not what makes you important. Children, yes, indeed, they are a blessing. But you know what? So is adoption and foster parenting. And those things actually reflect something God has done for us. He's adopted us into his family. He has chosen to love. And you can do the same thing. And God can change you by that. I remember a man I did some ministry traveling with, Jay Letty. He and his wife never did have any children. And that caused them much sorrow, but they decided they'd just continue to minister to everybody else's children. He figured he had several hundred children <laughs> by all the ones he and his wife just ministered to in the, in the years they were involved with children's ministry and youth ministry. God blessed them greatly through that. In addition, the value of a child is not based on that child's ability to function according to society's standards. Society does still look down on those who are handicapped, regardless of all the politically correct things we try to push on people. The value of man comes from the fact that we're made in his image, Genesis 126, period. Not on your physical or mental abilities. The joy of a child is not the child's ability as they get older and, oh, great, look it, they reflect me. No. The joy of a child is in God using you to love that child. God changing you as you love that child. That's where the real joy is. And regardless of what kind of handicap that is there, there is much to be thankful for as God changes you as you lovingly care for and teach that child to live their life to fullness, whatever that capability is. And there's a lot of love and joy that comes from that. And so you can be thankful. How about this one? You pray for a job promotion, instead you get laid off. Now you can't afford it here, you have to move away to someplace you don't want to go. Sometimes I suspect some people are here because of that. This wasn't their first choice. They're here because, well, that's where I got a job. Okay, so do we live by God's promises or by our ability to provide for ourselves? You see, when I understand Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first his kingdom is righteous, and he will provide the things I need for daily life, my food, my shelter, my clothing, that kind of stuff. You know what? I can be at peace even though I got laid off. Am I at the work? look for work and do everything I can? Of course I do. But I know God's going to provide for me what I really need. What about living someplace you really didn't want to live? That happens. We've had a lot of people have to move away from here. As Remember the early years when IBM was laying off, they had to leave. 
They had to find someplace else, and that still continues on. They liked it here. Their family was here, but they got to move somewhere place, someplace else to be able to make it. You know what? What is the Great Commission? We are to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching them to observe all what sort of things he's commanded. Okay, guess what? We're supposed to evangelize to the ends of the earth. You just got put on one of the ends of the earth. I guess you can fulfill what God has asked you to do. So rejoice in the opportunity to reach people you never would have met before and bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. You're fulfilling God's purposes. A slave goes where the master sends him, grateful for the opportunity to serve. Here's one that's common. You pray for relief from your sickness. Instead, it gets worse. It becomes chronic, and now it's uncurable. That's rough. No one who is sane enjoys physical suffering. And yet it is part of living in a fallen world, isn't it? Romans 8.18 says creation itself is groaning, waiting for final redemption. It also suffers the curse. But there is comfort in understanding that Jesus himself, God's son, suffered as well in this life. In addition, he is always with us, 2 Corinthians 1.3-4 tells us. We find even greater comfort knowing that this physical body isn't for eternity. Amen. It's going to be changed one day. I'm going to get a resurrected body and all the pains and the things that don't work right and you move and you hear things pop, snap. Yeah, I'm Rice Krispies. I move and I get snap, crackle, and pop. It's going to change. I'm going to work right. And that's all going to be behind me. Peter says that the sufferings of this world are for but a short time. We keep that in mind, and yes, I can give thanks. I can give thanks. I can still move at all, right? Or I can communicate or do whatever I can do. I'm thankful for that, longing and looking for the day that God is going to redeem the body as well. You see, you can give thanks to God in the midst of horrible circumstances if you have a heart of thanksgiving. And that heart is developed by remembering what you deserve, God's character, and your purpose of existence. You deserve only God's wrath, yet he has extended to you the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God can be trusted. Why? Because of his character. It is his character that sustains you in life and offers you eternal salvation in Christ. We saw that in Colossians 1 not too long ago. Christ himself upholds us in his hands that we even continue to exist at all. It's his character. And then as we remember why we are here, the purpose God created us, so that we might glorify him and be transformed like Jesus, I can continue on. Now, none of this comes easy because it's contrary to our sinful nature, and yet God patiently changes us. Like Paul in Philippians 4, he learned to rejoice always. Again, he says, rejoice. He learned to be content in every circumstance because he could see that God does empower him to respond the right way and glorify Christ, regardless of the circumstances. God will develop a true heart of thanksgiving in you if you let him. But do you have such a heart? Do you want that kind of heart developed, or do you prefer walking in ingratitude, complaining about life? I hope it's the former, not the latter. Do you see that God owes you nothing, but in love is giving you the greatest gift of all in Jesus Christ, or do you still have some sort of character of God in your mind that's false, so that you still think he somehow owes you something and has let you down? He hasn't. 
Have you learned to trust God because of His very character, what He is like, His nature, His attributes? Are you living with the goal of fulfilling the purpose for which God created you to begin with? The purpose for which He's redeemed you? Or are you still pursuing your own desires? Thursday is a national day of Thanksgiving, and most of America is going to stuff themselves and not even express appreciation to God for the meal they just ate, much less expound on that and God's marvelous grace shed upon us as individuals and upon this nation. I pray you will take to heart the pilgrim's example. Let it affect you. Do some research. You can go online and easily find all sorts of recaps of what the pilgrims went through. Read that on Thursday and then give thankfulness, not just for the food that's there on the table, but for all of God's manifold blessings to you. They could do it in the midst of sickness, starving, death of their loved ones. They were grateful for God's mercies, for his grace, and for the fulfillment of a dream that they had to be able to worship God according to their understanding of their scriptures and their conscience. And they were living that out. It was interesting when the Mayflower departed that spring. Anybody who wanted to go back could go back. Nobody did. Nobody went back. Though they knew it was still going to be just as rough, just as tough, nobody went back. That's a heart of thanksgiving. They knew what they were there for. They wanted to fulfill it. Give some time this Thursday to praise the Lord and thank Him for all that He's provided for you, including your life, your sustenance, and your salvation from the bondage of sin to freedom in Christ. Father, thank you for the examples that have been given to us. 